1: We're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintenmayer. My guest for episode 159 is Steve Bartek, best known as Danny Elfman's Right Hand Man, first in Oingo Boingo and then in a long career of arranging soundtrack music for Hollywood's biggest movies. You're right now hearing their biggest hit, Dead Man's Party, from the album of that name from 1985. But Steve has actually written a lot of music himself over the years. We're going to be discussing Tango by a recent ensemble, Jackie O, from their self-titled 2019 album. Then we'll look at two little bits from soundtracks that he's done by himself, The Wake, From the film Guilty as Charged 1991 and Checking Out Streets of Managua from the Art of Travel soundtrack 2008. And we'll look all the way back to the very, very beginning of his career, 1967. He co-wrote a song called Rainy Day Mushroom Pillow for the band Strawberry Alarm Clock from their Incense and Peppermints album. We'll conclude by listening to some fusion that he was involved in. A group called Fedge from a 1979 album live at the Keystone Corner. The song is called Nothing to Feel. For more information, please see JackieO.net. For more about this podcast, see NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. Make sure you are subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast feed. And if you want to support the effort, Patreon.com slash Nakedly Music is the place to go, which will get you not only ad-free audio, but my notes for this and many other episodes. I will have played a little bit of Dead Man's Party by Oingo Boingo from Dead Man's Party 1985 to just Orient, folks. You know, I would have loved to cover some Oingo Boingo with this interview, but it's a songwriting podcast. You get arrangement credit, production credit, but never songwriting credit, which seems, I mean, is it a little arbitrary as to, you know, (laughs) what the particular? (laughs) It's truthful. I mean, I early on,
2: I had more, my arrangements had more to do with what the song was, but danny's
1: uh, quite a songwriter so like off the first album you really got me which is a cover but arranged to hell like that was danny's idea of an arrangement
2: okay it's mostly all his ideas and i just made them work well you know as much as you can think that that works
1: <laughs> yeah i mean right from that first album it just sounds so coordinated so arranged so you were actually charting for the musicians right including like the bassist and drummer or just the horn section for the, everybody okay Danny and I
2: would get together, go through his song. We'd like change choruses, do transitional stuff, and, and make sure that it kind of was what he wanted. Then I'd bring in charts. Then the band would tear it apart and put it back together.
1: So, for instance, for Dead Man's Party, that bass line, which is pretty integral, is that the bass player or is that? That was Danny at home with his
2: secret. He got, if you actually follow it, it repeats while the band keeps turning around. The band has three, four bars, has Two, four bars in the middle of what the song is, but that bass part, then the downbeats become the outbeats, and the and so it it stays interesting, even though it keeps repeating.
1: For sure. I was pleased to hear about this new rock ensemble, Jackio, a self-titled album 2019, a single since then. That group is still going, right?
2: Yeah, we're actually playing this Friday at uh, we just got to call the place called Johnny's Sandwiches.
1: So this is the closest we have to an existence live Oingo Boingo, even though it's not that, but the fact that it's you and John Avila, the bass player, Oingo Boingo, with another guitarist and a, a drummer who are also, its you know, looking at your bio pages, all you guys are deep in the, the film industry, right? Or the TV soundtracking.
2: Yeah, yeah. B- various different music things. The guitar player I had originally bonded with, he played the slide guitar on a film called Midnight Run. He also happened to be a friend of another friend, and we became really close over the last 10, 15 years. And Jackie o was kind of a result of that. But John and I actually play with John Hernandez's, he calls it Oingo Boingo Former Members. And there's like five or six of us that were in it, and we play. we got a really great singer, not doing a Danny imitation, but, you know, singing the songs. And we've been doing that for years.
1: Okay, so there's a tribute band, but this is original music. Written by all of you in turn, is that right? All four of you are writing some of this with Jackie O?
2: Yeah, some of it we take turns and some of it we just sat down and wrote together. Like, actually, last weekend, we're doing music for a company that places instrumentals in films. So we said we deliver six songs. We sat down for two days, made up six things, recorded them, and we have one more day of recording recording. It's such a joy to be with real people, not over Zoom like this, and be banging out ideas and playing in the same room. It was just, I'm still high from that.
1: (laughs) Well, can you say a few words about, to introduce Tango, this is the closing track from the self-titled 2019 album. It's an instrumental. I assumed you had some significant share in the writing on this. Can you say a little about it before we
2: this one was all mine i had gone to see a band called gotan it's like fancy tango band and i got excited and went home and i thought about the structure of these tango songs i thought i can do that and so i sat down to do it and that's what tango was
3: Oh,
1: So right from the beginning, you're just establishing this is, well, I guess, is there a lot of variation in sort of what constitutes a tango beat or is like, no, that's where the snares are in, you know, a traditional tango?
2: The catch is this is not even close to a tango. (laughs) I just named it because the band I saw was Gotam. The structure is much like I had heard at the concert, but it's not even close to being a real tango. The recording with Jackio is kind of New Orleans I think that's how we we first approached it, and it kept changing. I originally played this with this band, Relative, that it was, except for that head, we just played free. Okay. So we'd go wherever we wanted to go. It wouldn't go necessarily, and if someone wanted to go back to the melody, boom, we'd all go back to the melody, that kind of thing.
1: Well, you have some fluidity here. And I, well, I saw one of your other things. I mean, the reissue of Dead Man's Party, there's like the single version and then there's, there's the 10-minute version. So I'm guessing that this band live can stretch out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. The, Jackie is the four of us love improvising together. And Ira and I had, over the years, have been playing together. John and the drummer and bass player have been playing together in a band called Mutator. And it, so they were really tight. And I've been playing with John for, you know 30 something years and boy go so we can all guess where everybody's going and sometimes we go to some places really fun sometimes not so
1: much but you know any sort of story of coming up with this head you know that's originally unison and then we we're going to harmonize it and then it, the sort of B section of the head has a nice little you know it's super melodic i guess
2: that was kind of my point after hearing in this concert the deal was that these little melodies and they'd always go somewhere and come back so I tried to make it as melodic as possible, but the riff is, is something that just falls off of your guitar. It's got all little pull-offs and, and the notes just fit on the guitar really nicely. So that's where the melody shapes came from. I made sure that I went to a different key, you know, all that kind of stuff. And the, the harmonization, it didn't have a harmonization when I first did it with the other band. But when I did it with Ira, it was like, well, we can't just play this together and it doesn't need chords because John is so busy <laughs> on the bottom, <laughs> keeping things moving. So I harmonized it.
1: Well, and then I like the fact that you break this up with what I call the King Crimson section, which is just a couple chords. <laughs> just to give like, the drummer a chance to <laughs> spread out and fill his
2: space. Those couple chords were like, my favorite part of the song, so...
1: And, but that's just really a transition to get back in this, I what, what I call the Spanish dance section. Let's see how this differs from the head here. Yeah, so this is your, I, we're going to a different key to do something equally melodic, but, you know, has some connection to the head. That's the B section. Okay, so that was, that was in there. It was not just purely the head and then... Wandering free for.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I misled you. Sorry. Long,
1: long periods. Interesting way to end this. It's kind of like you've already ended it. Like, it would be fine, but now let's have this really drawn out. Can you say a little about the decision-making process and how to end that? And like, we're going to end it, in fact, on the penultimate note of the second phrase. You caught me. That's one of my problems
2: I really like things that don't quite end. So the whole point of putting that on there was that I, live, I stop it wherever I want. They follow me. It's like, if I don't make it, I never make it to the last note, but sometimes I don't make it as far as I did there. And we stop and it leaves you with a whole different feel than if you had finished the thing. You've heard it finished already, you know, in the the tune before and slowing it down. I used to do a version of Well You Needn't by um, Thelonious Monk, where the entire first time you heard the melody, it was drawn out slow like that. And so that kind of stuck with me because I liked it. So that's why I pulled it into this one.
1: Any comments on sort of the choice of where and how long to have solos? The fact that there's like a solo, a bass solo, it's almost a minute long in the first half of the song. And you've got a guitar solo later on, but it's pretty short. And it's not like the bass solo, (laughs) that sort of monumental thing.
2: That recording was us live in a little studio just... Doing it. And so the length of the solo was how long he felt his solo was going. And, and the same with the end. Usually the end goes on forever with the guitar solo.
1: <laughs> was that, is that Ira soloing there? Or is that you? Yeah, that's, that's Ira. That's okay. Ira. I mean, the fact that he's soloing over the what I call the King Crimson section, that, you know, it's that it's maybe not as suggestive of you know that if you were just like under the bass solo where you're repeating through the verses again and you know if you're just vamping over a couple chords like or does he do this live such that he actually does go nonetheless a minute and a half Oh, he's
2: got plenty to say over those Uh, two chords yeah because we were trying to make it presentable, we didn't go off. Sometimes it lasts a long time. Sometimes it's short, you know, it depends on how people feel.
1: Well, and I guess if you have something like that, which is only a couple chords, you know, that has a feeling of stability that it really, if you want to, you can really leave the key and pull out all the jazz chops. In fact, you kind of have to, to make it interesting if it's not, you know, following a progression.
2: That's what actually the chord in there is one of my favorite chords. I used it in um whole day off. With Oingo Boingo, it's like a minor chord that the the fifth and the third go down a half step, and it just hurts in a nice way. So
1: So as you mentioned, this was an outgrowth of your side effects project, which you sent me a couple of in-progress or live tunes from that. That was neat. Most of your time since the Oingo Boingo breakup has been spent on soundtracks. Tell me what just business-wise, why? So if you look up your name on Spotify, say... Then you only find one full album that, in fact, just came out, but it's two soundtracks packaged together from totally different years: two thousand eight and nineteen ninety one. Is there a reason for that pairing? The record company approached me. Okay,
2: so the, and those those were the two films that I had that they could grab. No, Actually, most of my films I own, but, but they, they were the ones that the, the record company was interested in. So. That's the only reason they're, you're right. That's the only reason they're paired is because I wrote them.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I guess I would assume that like Romy and Michelle are the goofiest movie that they would be owned by Disney or whoever.
2: Yeah, they're Disney and they either chose or didn't choose to put out an album. I worked on a, the Goofy movie, another Goofy movie. I forget what it ended up being called. And they put out a record and they had a couple pieces of my score, but it's mostly the songs because Disney is all about songs. This is a
1: lot of tracks <laughs> put together most of which are very short. So actually I picked after some hemming and hawing, decided like, okay, let's go with some short things so we can play a couple of them. The Wake from the Guilty as Charged soundtrack, 1991. Do you want to say a couple words about that before we hear it?
2: This was a scene at the end of the movie where they wanted a Hollywood ending. So at the very end, there's a little Hollywood ending, but it was behind a cocktail party. So I had freedom to do whatever I want. So I took one of the themes and I actually recorded three string quartet quintets it was a string quartet with a bass player and put them in three different places one in the center and another on each side so it was the stereo string quart that's not stereo it was three 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 <laughs> three spread around the room the melody is actually a non transposable mode from olivier Messiaen's book of whatever where the harmonies will fit on top of each other kind of changing the tonality, even though it's the same scale.
1: So that's strange that you're saying this was a the overall thing was a cocktail party where this sounds like opening credits we're entering the haunted house something. Actually,
2: I, I misspoke. It was a, it was a wake funeral at the end, but it was it
1: was mostly just dialogue. This was behind. It's still very sprightly for something that has to be behind dialogue. You know, there's a lot of movement. It's a lot of
2: there's a couple dramatic moments that underscored what they were talking about every once in a while. So.
1: Okay, so that clearly explains the structure, because the structure is not, I mean, there's that sort of main riff. In fact, let me just play it. You know, it could be on Nightmare Before Christmas or any number of things that you've been involved with. I mean, so that happens a couple times, but other than that, there's not, you know, it's just... Kind of using the classical tricks to like, okay, now we're going up overhand and we're passing back and forth the melody around. And the fact that you're matching it to pre existent material explains to me a lot, like as to why it's this length. And because otherwise, I don't know if all the decisions make sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't present an obvious logic like, okay, and now is the place where we have, you know, that if you're just writing this in the abstract, you know, as a classical piece, why, you you know, you would shape it like this. Exactly.
2: Yeah, no, the leading tones were supposed to lead you astray. So that was kind of the fun of it.
1: After that riff that I just played, um, it sort of comes to a, a little crescendo and you've got a single trumpet or something. Or is that a French horn or what? I think I had both. I think trumpets, clarinet, I know. I had a small ensemble. It sounded like there was a bassoon there somewhere.
2: I asked for one of everything.
1: But it's interesting that all the non-stringed instruments get introduced very gradually, so that it's just not obvious until you get to what you call the Hollywood ending. And then it's this horn-led thing that's just giving a little tag to the whole piece. Yeah, that's what they wanted. Let me just play a couple more little sections to see if we can... you've played the main theme for the second time and you've got this little tumble down and then the whole rest of the thought actually, you know, does make, it's sort of a gradual crescendo and building up, uh, you know, so we can get to this horn led finale, any sort of comments on how academic is your approach here? Like you're using things that, okay, I remember this from studying Mozart a little bit, but like how much of that is just intuitive versus schooled?
3: Yeah,
2: it's kind of 50, 50. I mean, I, when you have an idea that I had to, crescendo to a certain place and I had these instruments so it's like okay what do I do to make people feel something to a resolve so it's intuitive and it's trained i mean i have a degree in orchestration from UCLA but i'm not so entrenched or well educated to pull off all kinds of you know other stuff
1: stuff like oh, I wrote this bassoon part and it's not really in a comfortable range for the bassoon. Like, is that just the kind of stuff that you'd have to learn on the job when you actually try to get a human being to do this and they say, no, no, no please don't.
2: <laughs> that's 50-50. You, you go armed thinking, you no, know where it is. But then when you hear someone play it, you go, oh, I'd rather hear that somewhere else because they're struggling or that's not the sound I wanted. My whole career with, with Danny was a earn as we learn. The first uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, it was like an amazing thing to hear an orchestra play stuff that I had put down on paper and Danny had written. So as we went, I kept trying things. So every film, I, I tried to experiment something, some sort of sound. So I got the hint of this from Shirley Walker, who she conducted Batman for us. She had a whole notebook of things that she kept track of, orchestral devices that worked in various situations so i I started trying to experiment with voicings with we finally started doing um when we did psycho he re-recorded the bernard herman psycho i looked at the score and i saw that the strings were doing something that you don't hear in mono because they were trading off on articulations so i had them do set up stereo where the first violins were in one side and the second violins in the other so when they were shifting you could hear it that was kind of revelatory for both Danny and I, and we've done many scores where we split the orchestra that way for the sound. I don't know how I got here. Sorry.
1: This is getting at sort of the general order of operations, either when Danny is putting something together and giving it to you, or when you're just getting it together yourself before you sit down, you know, to actually notate it. Like, are there, Recorded versions like do you work with a sequencer or something and sort of map it out completely that way and then it's in finale or whatever and then you can very easily you know have a transpose auto to get the viola and all that stuff. Um, yeah,
2: I mean the, the whole work thing has changed a lot since we first first started. Danny would play a little bit on the piano and I'd he'd write a little sketch down and I'd take it and we'd talk about what he wanted to do. And you no, know, Danny has a full sequence, he has all the, the samplers and all the stuff to make it. So I get a mix of what he thinks it's supposed to sound like. And uh, we have a guy, Mark Mann, who's an amazing musician, takes the MIDI and cleans it up so that when I see the MIDI, it actually looks like notes. Because, you know, when people are playing on sounds, not only just sloppy playing, but sounds speak, usually speak later. Lots of string sounds speak later. So people play them ahead. So when you see that MIDI data, it looks like trash. So Mark Mann cleans it all up so that when I look at the MIDI data, it's on the beat, it's it has representation. I work from there into a program called Sibelius. I put it in Sibelius and then I start putting dynamics and and voicing things to different voices from yeah, he's he's playing a synthesizer with one hand on thing as opposed to individual lines mostly. Sibelius has gotten much better over the years. I think it's note performer. It's got a set of samples that actually respond to the articulations I put in, notation-wise, And that's very helpful because things like uh, simple things like Arco and Pitts. Do you know what Arco and Pitts? Bowed and plucked, yes. Uh, To mark Pitts and then forget to mark Arco later down is really embarrassing on a recording session. (laughs) So this helps me find things like that to make sure that, yes, I did change them back to Arco and where exactly they're and if I make a mistake, it becomes obvious because I can hear it.
1: So it sounds like there's enough subtlety in the notation that you're not about to be automated away, right? That in terms of the, if you got each individual line as MIDI and you're translating it to something that looks like notes, like it seems like it's almost there, but it sounds like you're still having to put in a lot of effort to uh, you know, actually make it orchestrated. Yeah,
2: to make it so that real people can play it. Because it's it's sure, the MIDI is there for whatever samplers you got. But one string sample has, say, eight to 12 players playing. And in the real world, you may not have eight to 12 players to play a five-note chord. So you have to balance them and figure out what is the important one and, and what is it that the composer is hearing when he wrote that chord.
1: And you said with this one, with The Wake, you were having the same little group Play three different, you know, two overdubs to your original so that you could get them in different stereo spaces? No overdub.
2: I had three ensembles, which was the... If I give any musicians, <laughs> I want to do something with them that's fun. And so I had three ensembles, one in the center and one on either side. So the joy was conducting it and hearing it bounce <laughs> bounce around me.
1: I want to stop for a second to tell you about, as I often do, the Nebbia by Moen Showerheads. I've told you a lot about the spa shower that lets you have the feeling of a spa completely enveloping and wonderful and yet saves about half of the water you would normally use taking a shower. Well, they now have a new thing, the Nebbia by Moen Quattro, which in addition to being more affordable, has four different spray modes you can switch between. I like to use the classic soft spray for most of the shower, but then switch to the hard spray at some point to finish off. Backing up, Nebbia was a Kickstarter with brilliant engineers who used to work for NASA for Apple, for Tesla, who use their powers to further water conservation, especially, you know, given droughts. Their goal is to save 1 billion gallons of water by 2023. But they want to do this at the same time as making a superior shower experience, one that actually gives you around twice as much water pressure as you would have with your ordinary shower. So this was all impressive enough to gain Tim Cook as their first investor. And so they've grown and now have quite a few options Not just in shower heads, but shower shelves, shower curtains, bath mats, the quick dry earth mat, which is an amazing feat of engineering itself that I now own and use daily. So back to the new thing, the Quattro. You can get the fixed rain shower or the hand shower version. You can choose among five finishes to match your bathroom. I chose the hand shower version because I like to wash my feet. I can wash my dog now, though not typically at the same time as my feet. Nebbia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on nebbia.com and Nebbia gave us a special discount just for our community, go to Nebia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebbia products. Even better, Nebia is offering free shipping on Quattro orders in the U.S. for just a few more days, so this is a great deal to jump on. Again, go to Nebia.com slash N-E-M, that's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M to check out what they have to offer and say 10% with the code N-E-M. I had one other little thing to talk about the soundtrack work. So this is from the Art of Travel soundtrack, 2012. I just want to pick something. There's a lot of variation on that. On the older one, there's there's quite a bit of variation too. But this one in particular, you know, there's a lot of obvious sort of synth stuff or xylophone stuff. But this one, you know, was clearly a band. So you're applying your arrangement skills from Oingo Boingo to do these little snippets. And this one, in fact, is only a minute long. A lot of musical material in there for a mere minute long. I mean, that's basically a song. If you just repeated it a couple times, Had somebody sing a little. put some lyrics on it. Any comments about sort of how you're directing an ensemble like that, as opposed to the strings?
2: That ensemble was a little, it was me. So I addressed it by building it up slowly. That particular score, my goal was to just record things in my studio. As much real stuff as I could. I had a string trio. I had a one trumpet player. And then I played a bunch of guitars and piano and bass. I had a, a good time trying to make that work. And that particular cue, it was a montage on the streets of the, a bunch of kids, some tough kids. some of the, And I, I wanted it to move. So I wanted it to feel like a band. And I'm glad that you caught that it, it
1: did. So you at least had a real drummer come in. who, who Yeah, is... oh, John. John Hernandez is usually on most of my stuff. All right. Well, that's why it sounds like Oingo Boingo. Besides the fact that I wanted something that had, you know, your guitars prominent, and there's at least three to four of you playing on there in terms of your overdubs of your guitar, so you can have all the, all the squeaking. I forget if I did it on there, but I, I was having a
2: good time doing backwards guitars, there's a couple cues in the movie, a jungle montage, and one earlier on that I know I spent time getting some backwards guitar fun. Some of the guitars are miked with a, um, an amplifier and some of them are Roland guitar synthesizer because I couldn't make too much noise. So I, I used one of those Roland
1: boxes. And of course, a lot of the cues, they have to be out of the way. There's many, many cues on this album. I didn't count the number of tracks, but there are probably 20 tracks at least just for this soundtrack.
2: Right. It was, it was one of those that they, they wanted a lot of music, but they didn't want it to be very long. <laughs> they wanted me to, to do, basically, music was interstitial. It was for changing scenes. There's just a few places where they let me write under a scene. Little montages like this one. I, there was one going up to Machu Picchu was they had like these montages at the beginning and the end. And uh, a few dramatic scenes, but most of it was just in between.
1: I feel like a lot of films, like when they have a place, a montage where the music is going to actually jump out, then it's just like, well, let's pull something from the history of rock and roll rather than yeah. let the composer. <laughs> There's some of these soundtracks that are, you know, it's uh, music by Mark Mothersbaugh or whatever, but I'm hearing a lot of 60s rock or what, you know, I'm sure he did interstitial stuff, but that, like that's not the stuff. In the Wes Anderson films or whatever that your attention is called to, I guess his role is more picking those or I, I don't know exactly how the director and the music producer always come together. The there. Music
2: supervisor who's in charge of finding those songs.
1: Gotcha. So, yeah, any sort of comments with these two things about, you know, having to deal with the director and how many times are you going back and forth? Are you per- having to provide... A demo version, you know, before you put in the time to record this whole thing. Like, do you have a minimalist version? Like, I'm thinking something like this over this section that they have to approve, or what? A lot of that depends on the money they have, <laughs> the time they have. <laughs> okay. Um,
2: there was one where the director didn't pay attention to me at all. I was sending him demos, and I, me and the music supervisor, he was in New York finishing the color correction, and we were going to record like in three or four days. And he finally shows up at my place and starts making me change little things like that. It, it was an abstract string effects behind a tense scene. So it was just building tension. And he had me go in. He was a drummer. He had me go in and change notes one by one just to slightly change the <laughs> harmony. And the, and the reason was because he could. He had finished all his attention on the color correction, which I, I'm sure that that was hell for whoever he was working with. Um, and, and finally, the, the first day, the music supervisor was there with me. And so the second day, she brought the producer in. And the producer came in, and I played stuff for him too. And he said, good, good, fine, good, 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 go. And he told the director that he's not allowed to say a word at the recording session. So that, that was like... Kind of the worst and the best situation I i had been in because when we recorded, it went really quick. I did what I want and he was forced to be happy. That's not the best way to do a collaboration, though. <laughs> Art of Travel was, they had me change a few things, but they were generally happy with what I was doing because I understood what they wanted.
1: Does that mean it was a lower budget thing? That's why you're recording mostly by yourself in your, you know, and not.
2: Yes, by myself in my room. That's, that's low budget. The other one I had an orchestra, so big difference there, yeah.
1: Let's jump to a completely different part of your career here. Your prehistory, let's just say. So I was not even aware of your association with the classic psychedelic band Strawberry Alarm Clock, co-writing and playing some flutes on their uh, first couple albums. So we were going to play Rainy Day Mushroom Pillow from Incense and Peppermint's 1967 give the background.
2: Yeah, around 13 or 14, I wrote songs with my neighbor, George, who was a few years older than me. who was a bass player. So he ended up getting into the Strawberry Alarm Clock by all kinds of machinations, and they took our songs. So this was one of the songs I wrote with George at 13 or 14. You can tell by the lyrics that I had no idea what I was talking about. The chords, though,
1: there's a story about the chords I, I'll tell afterwards. Did you even have any... I mean, I know you're. it's a very prominent flute part by you on here, but you were already playing guitar at the time, but you were an official part of the band because you were too young to join. Okay, so you know more of the story. Yes,
2: at 14, my mom would let me go on tour with them. They They wanted George and I to join the band because they liked our songs, and the recording went well. But my mom, luckily, actually, for the rest of my career, I'm glad, didn't let me go, and I went to college instead.
1: So did that mean that you didn't actually have... Much power or involvement in like this arrangement actually coming together? Did they just sort of add your flute after the fact, or you know, it was no? This is a song you co-wrote. You were right in there making some decisions here.
2: We rehearsed it first, and we go through that. A lot of it is the song I wrote and George. Uh, The bass parts, George is playing the bass part. He's the co-writer. The vocal stuff is all stuff that they put on on top of it. I had no power. You're right. I was the flute player. I sat for a whole day and played flute like on two songs,
1: Well, I heard you doing some crazy flute stuff, even on some of the Jackio stuff, like recently. Once a night, I, I take out the flute. I didn't go through the entire Oingo Boingo catalog just to see, is there flute somewhere in it? I played flute on one of
2: Danny's solo records.
1: Okay. One song on his solo album. So I assume in writing this, the big flute vamp... Like, was that there right from the beginning, or this was something that you added as you were developing it, and you guys just wrote it strumming guitar and, you know, doing chords?
2: It was strumming guitar and chords, and there's a line on early that I think the organ mostly plays, which I had thought of as being flute. And so, I forget. I, I was 14, I'm 70 now, so that was a long time ago.
1: 1967, that's sort of the heart of the psychedelic era, but like, what were you immediately what had you already heard just in the last months before you're writing this that made you like we got to write about a mushroom pillow you know (laughs) a
2: lot of what george and i would do we actually did it in the library we'd look at titles of books and just pick words and throw them together mushrooms were cool because they implied drugs of some sort then george was older and he knew that i was
1: younger and didn't care and the fact that it's all floaty and with the beautiful
3: clouds,
1: nothing could be better than being in the clouds. Why, why poison dreams? Why, why that? The negative part of the, it,
2: you know, if you need tension and resolve. So without that poison, there's no tension in it, right?
1: I guess so. But I, you know, I guess I don't, I don't expect anything besides floating off on a cloud from a song like this. And, and you certainly with your flute part gave that energy a very, you know, floating with some musicianship. I feel like, you know, it's easy for a psychedelic band to not necessarily have any musicianship there at all. But the fact that you were right there providing some craziness at the very beginning.
2: The musicians in this band actually I have to thank them for a lot because I made money with them. My parents let me pursue music. These few songs brought in money, and my parents then thought, well, it's okay to be doing music. The drummer played great vibes. So they weren't totally hack musicians, but I had no clue. I was 14.
1: And this uh, harpsichord part. So was that at least the progression, was that like part of the composition or that was purely an arrangement thing?
2: We wrote the... um, the progression. And that was what Mark Mark Weiss was like keyboard player. He he made that out of it.
1: So you knew it had to move somewhere. It couldn't just kind of sit on these same two chords, you know, besides the the choruses <laughs> indefinitely.
2: I kinda like slightly off chord progressions.
1: So I guess I wouldn't have even necessarily, you know, other than this is just an oddity that you were involved with this, but the fact that you have continued an association with this band that you produced their 2012 reunion album that, you know, included at least one of your songs like re-recorded from the old days. Say a little about that.
2: George is so much we were best friends and we best man at his wedding and stuff like that. Um, so we've kept in touch no matter what. And at one point he came to me and they had a gig opening for Vanilla Fudge and oh, there's one other band.
1: Iron Butterfly. I, I, Iron it Iron was.
2: It was Vanilla Fudge and Iron <laughs> Butterfly somewhere back east. And I said I'm in. I'll do anything to be on the stage with these you know, heroes. And it all fell through, but we started rehearsing and then uh, the keyboard player hadn't been playing with them, but he got excited about playing with them because I had started playing with them. It was just fun.
1: Well, clearly, if you're getting to the point of producing them and contributing more to the arrangements, like you're redoing some of the same songs, but I assume in the olden days you had some older guy producer that was like, you know, even though you'd rehearse beforehand, that was kind of running everything.
2: Yeah, they had a guy who was in control there. And actually, the nice thing about this is they trusted me to be in control. So a lot of the arrangements were just stuff we worked out that they were following me, which was great. I didn't always work. and I spent a lot of time editing stuff at the end, like any producer would. They're great to play with. So they were responsive. If I did something and suggested something, they'd be all into it. And were you playing guitar on that later album as well, or just? Yeah, no. 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 I, Howie's, the other guitar player, was the lead guitar player. Because I, it, once again, I play with him when I can, uh-huh. but sometimes I can't because of Danny. So it's the same thing with, with uh, John Hernandez's band. It's like, I love playing with him, but I can't always be there. So I'm not always there.
1: Any further memories of this formative doing a session as a you know, 14, 15-year-old? This seems just crazy. It's kind of all a haze. I, re- I remember sitting and having
2: to watch them, but it was the thing that got me excited about recording just watching them in the, in, it was a little tiny studio on uh, Sunset Boulevard, original sound studios. They mostly did oldies. Even at that point, they did, old, they produced oldie records and didn't really do a lot of live recording. And it was just a cool room, but it was great to watch, you know, the set of the mics and all that stuff. I was given one shot at each song. So that that was my one-take flute solo.
1: So like, did the band already have those harmonies worked out? That wasn't part of the composition, right? That was a band thing? Their manager hired a guy
2: who I think was the, their producer. And he produced and um, harmonized all the vocals with them into shape because they really weren't harmony singers before that.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, just the chorus itself, having the Mushroom Dreams go into that note, that sort of is a... Distinguishing part of the song. Like, I don't know that it would be as certainly not as effective if you didn't have that big blocky vocal thing there.
2: It definitely is their
1: style. All right. So, finally, you had sent me a couple things which I had to sort of track down. That this one that I want to close with is one that people can hear. This band, Fedge from the late 70s. I see that there are two albums, at least, you know, live albums that are posted pretty recently, I guess, re-released, like 2019, but one from 1978, one recorded in 1979. The song you had picked out was uh Nothing to Feel. So from, uh, I think the album is just called Alive now, but uh, I found it at some place live at the Keystone Corner. So this is, I certainly know John Patitucci, the bass player here. I, I was not as familiar with some of the other names here, Jim Cox on keys, Tom Rainier, Jeff Donley, Dave Krigger, but you know, googling them, I see a lot of them. Have, you know, went on to have very illustrious careers. This is pre or overlapping with uh, Oingo Boingo that you were in this fusion band. It was right around the
2: same time. This was a band put together by the trumpet player Jeff, whose name backwards happens to be Fedge. Ah, aha. Uh-huh. I was pulled into it by Dave Krieger, who I had been playing in a big band with. Dave Krieger had a like rock and roll big band that was really fun to play with. He pulled me in. Jeff like paid for all the there's the videos and produced the whole thing and had each of us write something. And the, this one is is one I wrote for them. And the title came. Tom Rainier is like the consummate musician, a piano player and sax player. But he, he's playing sax on here. But in the studio, he's mostly a piano player, keyboard player. We ran through the song the first time, and the first thing he turns out, so there's nothing to feel here. <laughs> so I thought, okay, that's the name of the best name. Of the-
1: <laughs> what happened with this band? Did you just get busy in these other things, or did, did Jeff break it up, or what? Yeah, it was Jeff's project.
2: He brought us together for the
1: gig. He had a slightly different ensemble
2: for some other recording at a live gig that I remember, a different bass player. But it was his project, and, and it it fell apart because... It's not like Boingo where you rehearse for years and you finally get your break. It was a put together project.
1: Sure. But, you know, this tendency toward fusion that, you know, your side effects project later that you just, you know, we, we mentioned that you've done some live stuff with. It seems like this is still part of your influences that. Didn't get to get into Boingo. That, you know, the Boingo from the very beginning, like it's very tasteful. It's very melodic. It's very, the guitar is locked in with everything else. You don't just get to go onto a solo jag like in this song that your folks are going to
2: hear. Yeah, that's a little indulgent, I know. But again, this one gave me a chance to harmonize in the way that I had, to harmonize in a style that I enjoyed that I couldn't do Mm -hmm. with Boingo.
1: So just in terms of balancing these things now I assume that the arranging thing you know do you still like get residuals from Batman and stuff you know for or is that all sort of paid at the time and it doesn't persist Well it
2: depends on if it's recorded here or in London. Batman was recorded in London so it's gone. Batman returns was recorded here so I get money for that. And it does keep going. If if people keep watching it I still make a little money. So I'm thankful that I'm in a position financially only because of that.
1: Yes. And so you don't have to do any of this additional stuff. But insofar as you have time and it's, you know, parts of your musical background and just even I I saw that you mentioned in your bio that even just playing guitar, like the fact that you're doing that in soundtracks, like with Bear McCreary and stuff like that, that was sort of a significant rediscovery, you know, something to get back in your life. Yeah,
2: there's there almost 20 years where I barely played guitar, barely played. I never played flute. I, you know. I barely played guitar because I was in front of a computer or in front of an orchestra or had music paper in front of me. And that was what I was doing and worried about. And so my wife made me start having backyard jams and they were themed. I, would, I wouldn't do them unless I had music for people so they could come in and know all the songs because it would be on a piece of paper in front of them and they could just read it and not have to think about, do I remember this song right? So once I started doing that, I realized how important it is to be playing with other people. That was why I became a musician. You know, that's why you, you keep going because you're really me and George sitting in my bedroom writing songs it was important. I mean, it was an interaction that well, I've been missing. Granted, I'd, I'd been with like the best musicians in the world playing orchestra music, but it's not as personal as you with your instrument and someone else with their instrument interacting.
1: And I take it Danny does not share that sentiment. So. <laughs>
4: well, he, goes, he,
3: goes, he goes back and forth.
2: I mean, uh, he he is so enjoying. Live performance these days, and at this point, twenty years ago, he would have poo-pooed the whole thing. In fact, he had sworn that he would never play Dead Man's Party again. And three or four years ago, with Nightmare Before Christmas, there were so many fans, and, and the tickets went so fast that he decided that he's played that song at the end of the concert as an encore for a surprise. And it was like hell froze over. He had been telling his the management, and everybody, I'll never do this song. I'll never, do, you know. There he was, is doing it and enjoying it.
1: It was promising that the last Boingo album were like, okay, maybe we can keep doing this, but we can bring in all the arrangement stuff and do the strings and sort of do it up just as fancy as one of the soundtracks. I don't know, was that a fundamental shift for you guys at that point? It, obviously, a thing that you tried that didn't really stick because there aren't five more albums like that. But, but
2: it, The last album was the last album because... And Danny wasn't wasn't happy doing rock at the time he wanted to do other stuff, and particularly the kind of rock he felt locked into with with Boingo
1: well, playing the same songs at concerts year after year, and you know you're everybody gets tired of that it, it, the only the
2: only place where we were rock act a big band was here in Los Angeles. We'd go anywhere else we couldn't get arrested, so it was very hard to tour the last tour. Danny let go of the, the horns to try to be able to afford to do a tour and it wasn't the same band you know? <laughs> that did not go well with bands I, I know. Know, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was hard um, so
1: all right well thank you so much for doing this so so many different threads here to try to pull together i, I wish you luck <laughs> <laughs> all right well here it is nothing to feel by fedge Thanks so much to Steve. What a treat to get to talk to another artist off my bucket list. I own many Oingo Boingo albums. I'm sorry that last episode was a recycled, pretty much pop thing. We just fell a little behind on editing, but that does not mean I have not recorded. A lot of good stuff already just waiting to come out. Next is John McCutcheon, world-famous folk artist, then Chuck Prophet and Asleep at the Wheels of Ray Benson, I just talked to yesterday, probably the most important Texas swing band still existent. You can get all these interviews and many, many others that I've done by subscribing directly to the Nakedly Examined Music podcast. Do it through NakedlyExaminedMusic.com or by looking Nakedly Examined Music up on the podcast app of your choice, or get the ad-free feed at patreon.com slash Music if you are a supporter you would have gotten this episode a full week early, and I'm going to try to keep doing that. We'll see how that works editing-wise, but that's the goal. You probably know that we are part of the Partially Examined Life Podcast Network, and if you're an Apple Podcast user, you can get my ad-free episodes by subscribing directly through Apple Podcasts, where they take a little money through a subscription you make through the App Store. Doing that will get you ad-free episodes not only for this podcast, but also for my Pretty Much Pop and Philosophy Versus Improv podcasts. Hope you're all doing well. Had a good Halloween. Keep all music in. Until next time, this is Mark Vincent Myers signing off. So long.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by thirty percent in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help.